I, I would ask you to turn in your copies of God's Word to Ezra. We're going to be looking at chapters 7 through 9 tonight as we, as we consider how the Word of God uh, shows up and plays an important role in understanding Ezra and Nehemiah. Hopefully, by this time, if someone met you on the street and asked you what things are most important to your pastor, I hope that one of the top three that would come to your mind are, would include the Word of God, that it is central, that it has the power to do what we need to do. So the Word of God, I use this phrase a lot, the Word of God does the work of God. And I, I say that because I believe that, and I believe that because I see it in the Scriptures. And so tonight, that's the theme that we're going to put on display. You know, what's interesting, if you read the book of Ezra, and I noticed this in the last year or so, a uh, number of months ago as I was reading through Ezra and Nehemiah previously, and that's that it's six chapters and you never hear about Ezra. And then chapter 7 opens. And then you start to hear about Ezra. Well, you know, the book is not that many more chapters long. I believe the book is only 10 chapters. And so it's chapter 7. You're a good two-thirds of the way through the book before Ezra even shows up on the scene. And this is the man after whom the book is named. So I've used this little illustration here in the play The Tempest... Shakespeare has a character, Antonio, and he has him speak this line. What's past is prologue. What I'm trying to communicate there is that you can go six whole chapters of preparation until the moment of, of the, the pinnacle of the book seems to be reached when Ezra shows up on the scene in this, these first couple of verses of Chapter 7, it says some very um, powerful things. Signals a, a change in the book. It says this in, in chapter 7, verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. This signals a change. Because you think about what's been happening in the first six chapters. They've been renovating buildings. They've been renovating a property. But now, what needs to happen before the book closes is God needs to renovate hearts. That's the biggest change that we see from Ezra 1-6 through 6, and then Ezra 7-10. through 10. So from the opening of Ezra... To chapter 7, some 80 years have passed. We, we kind of get this picture that this is a story that takes place over a short period of time. And we see in the Old Testament uh, many examples of this, how time speeds up and time slows down. You see that particularly in the book of Genesis. Okay, uh, I, I've perhaps mentioned this before, but... Sometimes the only thing you hear about an individual in the book of Genesis is one verse. And it just says that they lived and that they died and perhaps something that they did in between those two dates. And then other times, time seems to slow way down. And God seems to be zeroing in on a person 
or a story to tell or to make some very big points. He does this in the life of Joseph. The life of Joseph takes up most of the final chapters of the book of Genesis. Uh, the second half of the book of Genesis has a lot to do with Moses. So time slows down in that book and, and God seems to zero in on a person or a, or a situation to make some very important points. Well, in, uh, from the opening of Ezra until now, chapter 7, some 80 years have passed. The people began work on the temple, on the foundation, and they had that work shut down by the government. And then they were permitted by the government to resume again. The ruling authorities had, had been both for and against what was going on there in Jerusalem. It seems like a slow process, particularly for a people who, remember, only spent about 70 years in exile, and now it's taken about 80 years just to get things back up and running. But in the economy of God, everything that was past is simply prologue. It's preparation for the renewal that God was going to bring. So all of these trials and travails that the people of God go through in chapters 1 through 6 are bringing them, are bringing them to this point where they can have renewal of the heart after they've had renewal of their temple. This is very important. So, here's my first point. God's Word sustains God's people. God's Word sustains God's people. Let's read in chapter 7, the first ten verses. Now, after this, of course, what is the this that he's saying? Well, the decree of Darius allows the people to go back. You see in chapter 6, the temple is finished. The temple is dedicated. Passover is celebrated. It's like all of the rituals have been done. All of the hoops have been jumped through. Everything's seen. It seems like almost the book should end at chapter 6. And it should say something like, And they all lived happily ever after, worshiping Yahweh. But that's not where the book ends. After this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of uh, Marioth, the son of... I probably should have just skipped all of this. <laughs> Verse 6. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. There, there's, the, there's the meat. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. So some preparation has happened. That the Lord, the God of Israel, had given, and the king granted him all that he asked. For the hand of the Lord was on him. Okay, so now we have a man coming on the scene at the right moment, at the right time. He has the right credentials, the right qualifications, mostly the qualifications that he needed was that the hand of the Lord was on him. Okay, so God's about to do something. That's the, the rumblings we should be hearing in the background. Verse 7. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and the Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king, for on the first day of the first month he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. There's a little repetition there, just in case you missed it the first time. The writer gives it to us again to pound home this point. This is a man set apart 
for a very specific and important purpose. Verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord. In other words, there's some kind of connection between this man setting his heart to study the law of the Lord and the hand of the Lord being on him. Some kind of connection between the power of God and the Word of God. The power of God to do a task and the Word of God to bring it about. Some kind of connection there. That's what we should be reading. For Ezra had... The, the, the word for tells us that there's a connection. The hand of God was on him for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and his rules in, in Israel. So here we see a picture of God sending a person at the right moment to begin a task of spiritual renewal among his people. Note the timeline. The physical work was done. The temple was completed. It was dedicated. Passover had been celebrated in Ezra chapter 6. What work could there possibly be left to do? After all, wasn't the reason that they came up from Babylonia just to set things right to build the city again? To build the temple again? No, there has to be a spiritual work that needs to be completed. Ezra is sent. The hand of the Lord was on him. Ezra had set his heart to study the Lord. We see in this a pattern of spiritual leadership. Study and teaching. Now, I've read a lot of books on what it means to be a pastor, and of course, all of them seem to emphasize the preaching of the Word. There's many other things. As a matter of fact, I've heard many people say, well, he's a good preacher, but he's not a good pastor. I've heard people say that about folks as an accusation. I've heard people say, he's a good pastor, but he's not a good preacher. Okay, that one actually can't be. You, you actually can't be a good pastor if you're not a good preacher. And when I say good preacher, I don't mean just ability. I mean your, your diligence to handle the Word and to give it to your people. You know, in, in churches all across our land, there are pastors who go up into pulpits to give advice instead of to say, thus saith the Lord. Okay, there's a difference between those two things. So, it's possible to be a good uh, a good preacher and still fail as a pastor. These things are on my mind all the time because I don't want to fail it either. <laughs> but it's not possible. You can't be a good pastor if you're not a good preacher. Why? Because the Word of God is the only thing that I have to give. The Word of God is the only thing that anyone has to give. So I hope that I'm skillful in other areas and loving people and in counseling and in leadership and all of these other things. But the Word of God is central. And so that's the one thing that, that I can't fail at. That's the one thing that we as a church can't fail at. Because the Word of God is the only thing that has the power to make dead people live. Ezra understood this. The Lord understood this of Ezra. He had set his heart to study the law and then to do it. And to teach it, we hear echoes of James, right? Not echoes because James hasn't happened yet. But James is, of course, saying, don't just be hearers of the word, be doers of it. Ezra seems to be a man of that character quality. He seems to understand that you can't just teach the word. You have to do the word. You can't just study the word. You have to do the word. Why? Because it's the word that has the power to cause or to effect change, and spiritual good. 
That's part one of God's Word sustains God's people. Here's part two. Flip over, perhaps one page in your Bible, to Ezra chapter 8. We're going to start reading in verse 15. Ezra chapter 8, verse 15, we'll read a little piece, and then we'll jump to verse 31. Ezra eight fifteen, I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priest, I found there none of the sons of Levi. Now, why would that be a problem? Because if you're going to have a temple, you've got to have Levites. You have to have priests. It doesn't make any sense to have a temple with no priests. In this particular point of Israel's history. They have to be making the sacrifices. They have to be offering right worship to God. On the Day of Atonement, once every year, the the priest enters the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the people. As a matter of fact, if if you do much study about this, this day, this was considered such a high task and such a dangerous thing that they would actually tie a rope to the ankle of the priest who went into the Holy of Holies. So that if God struck him dead, they could pull him out without going in themselves. In other words, God was so holy that if something went wrong, if the priest himself was not purified before entering the presence of God, if, if, uh, the, if he did not make right atonement before God, and God, as, as the representative of the people, God struck him dead, which God was totally just in doing if he had done, right? He doesn't owe any of his life they would be able to pull him out. This is such a holy moment. There's no Levites. There's no Levites. There's no priests, right? They're the, they're the tribe out of which God chose priests. And if there's no Levites, there's no priests. If there's no priests, then the temple is just a building. Can't, can't accomplish what God put it there, His uh, 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 representation of His presence among His people. There is none of that. Okay. I started editorializing there. And I lost my place. Hopefully it's not editorializing. Hopefully it's commenting. Right. Verse 16. Then I sent for... Oh, goodness. Eliezer, Eleazar, Ariel, Shemaiah. Why don't we just skip down to verse 17. And I sent them to Iddo, the leading man of the place, Cassiphiah, telling, him, telling them what to say to Iddo and his brothers and the temple servants at the place of... Cassiphiah, namely, to send us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion, of the sons of Mahli, the son of Levi, son of Israel, namely, Sherebiah, with his son and kinsman also Hashabiah, and with him Jeshiah, of the sons of Merari, with his kinsmen and their sons twenty, besides two hundred and twenty of the temple servants whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites. These were all mentioned by name. Then, and I have all of this underlined in my Bible, the next few verses, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before God, to seek from Him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all of our goods. For I was ashamed to ask for the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand, of our Lord, uh, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, 
and he listened to our entreaty. So you see what the people are about to do. Ezra is coming up. He's about to, to go to Jerusalem. He's bringing a band of Levites with him, a band of priests and temple servants, so that the temple can operate properly. And now a test comes, right? He's already told the king, listen, God is with us. God is doing His thing right now. He will protect us. And then comes the moment when they have to travel. And he says he's tempted tempted to ask the king for a guard detail to accompany them. But he says, I knew I couldn't do that. So I knew I couldn't do that because I had already told the king. I had already told them about how God will protect us. So following God's pattern... Ezra recruited some Levites to return to Jerusalem with him in order to restore right worship before God. And there are a few things listed on the paper here that I've already uh, mentioned, but in Numbers chapter 8, that's where, if you'd like to review that or write that in the margin of your Bible, uh, Numbers chapter 8, verses 16 through 18 is where God calls out the Levites. He sets them apart uh, to, uh, to serve in the temple. But there was some danger present, of course. The trip would be perilous. Moreover, Ezra had already stated his confidence to the king that he knew that their God would protect him. This is a moment of testing for Ezra's leadership and for the trust of the people at large. Would they be able to believe, would they be able to believe in this moment that God would protect his people, his remnant, and preserve his work in Jerusalem? Because remember, friends, this is no small thing. God, if God does not protect his people, then God's promises fail. Remember, if God's people get crushed, if God's people get snuffed out, then God has been made a liar. No longer can, uh, can a Savior come from the people of Israel if the remnant is crushed out. But God, of course, has been so faithful. He was faithful to Abram. Remember when Abram, they went into the new land and he was afraid of the king and so he gave, he gave his wife to the king so that maybe he wouldn't kill him. And of course, God preserves him still, even through his own sin. God preserves a people through Isaac. Remember, Abraham takes his son Isaac up on top of the mountain. But God stops his hand. He preserves his people so that God is not made a liar, so that God's purposes can continue. God takes care of Noah. I'm going backwards now, but He takes care of Noah and Noah's family through the ark. They're saved through the waters of judgment. By faith, they enter the ark. And God saves His people through Joseph. Remember, the the family of God is about to starve to death. And Joseph's brothers come to Egypt to get grain so that they can live, so they won't starve to death, and so God's purposes won't be snuffed out. And so through Joseph... God protects His people. And this is, these are just the examples from Genesis. God is faithful. He does it again to Moses at the Exodus. Remember, they cross on dry ground and then the waters close in behind them. God will protect His people. But in the moment, it's kind of hard to believe that when it's your life and not just a story that you've heard from your ancestors. But God provides. Look at verse 31. Chapter 8, verse 31. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And this phrase that keeps getting repeated surfaces again. The hand of our God was on us. And He delivered us from the hand of the enemy. So there's two hands, the hand of God and the hand of the enemy. Which one one do you think is going to win? 
The hand of our God was on us, and He delivered us from the hand of our enemy and from the ambushes by the way. So apparently there were some. There was some danger. It was real. It wasn't just imagined. God's Word preserves God's people. But secondly, God's Word corrects God's people. God's words corrects God's people. If you read in 2 Timothy where it's talking about the Word of God, it says the Word of God is useful for teaching. One of the words that it says there is for correcting. We need God's Word to correct us. It's uncomfortable, but we need it. In Ezra chapters 9 through 10, the last two chapters, we ask this question. What was the result of Ezra's renewed ministry of the Word? Well, friends, we should know by now, any time that the Word of God confronts the people of God, there is repentance. There's either a hardness of heart, and they go off into judgment, right? God had just, did, had just done that. He sends the people into exile because they were not repenting. They were not turning back to Him, so God punishes them. But in other times, when the Word of God is preached to God's people, they repent. And this is the pattern we see here. Repentance over the sins of the people and a returning to the Lord. Let's read what's printed on your page there from uh, chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And our iniquities, and for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hands of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant. And to give us a secure hold within His holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. See what was happening here? Ezra prays this prayer to God and he does it almost as if he's a representative of the people. He, he repents on their behalf. He's like their representative. Remember, Moses did the same thing. He, he was a representative of the people. He interceded uh, to God on behalf of the people so that God's hand might be stayed, so that God would not utterly strike them down where they were. Remember, God, uh, Moses goes up on top of the mountain. He has this great experience with God. God gives him the law. And then what's happening? What's happening down at the foot of the mountain? They're already worshiping a golden calf that they made while their leader is actually meeting with the the one true God, the people are already turning aside to their idols. And what does Moses do? He intercedes for his people and he, uh, he prays for them. They, they have kind of this, this group repentance. Something like that is happening right here. He starts off, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities. See that, see that change from the first person singular to the first person plural? If we can go back to English class. He says, my, my face, I to our. Our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. And our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Here's a little side note. I know we've mentioned this before. But this whole, this whole scene 
should remind us of 2 Kings 22. Remember that really funny, powerful, profound story of it during the days of Josiah? Josiah is this very young king. He, 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 he comes to the throne at a very young age. And the people are searching down in the treasury. They're searching down and you would picture like the, 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 the basement of the church. And they find the book of the law. They find God's Word. It had been neglected so long that nobody even knew it was lost. They just discover it. And those words are read to the king. And what does the king do? He tears his clothes. He repents. It's read to the people. And the people repent and revival breaks out when the Word of God is unleashed on them. It's the power of the Word of God. Friends, if I believed that I had to be a good enough preacher for people to get saved, or if I believed that I had to be a good enough evangelist, like I had to be skillful enough or smart enough or tall enough or whatever or good-looking enough for people to listen to me, if I believed that, I think I would have already thrown in the towel. The only hope that we have that spiritual good will happen is because of the power of God through the Word of God. And so we just open the gate and unleash it like a tiger, right? You just let it do its work, and it will. So friends, if you're a Sunday school teacher, if you're, a, if you're just discipling your kids or your grandkids, don't allow yourself to slip into despair wondering if you have what it takes, because you don't. But the Word of God does. The Word of God has what it takes. So press on. Press on. And give them the only thing that has power. As we close, uh, you know, of course, it's, it's a, a typical preacher thing to say as we close, and then clearly I have like six points down here at the bottom. But we'll go through those quickly. Efficiently. I don't know that we're going to go through them quickly. Try not to waste any time. Number one, or letter A there. God shows His grace in this scene... Because you think about this, he's allowed the people to return to Jerusalem, right? He's brought them out of exile. He's allowed them to return. He's allowed them to build, to build their temple back before he even sends the man to convict them of their sin. You see what's happened here? In other words, he allows them in grace to return, to come out of exile, to come out of their punishment. He frees them from their punishment before they even return to him and repent. You see, God goes before us. He moves first, He loves first, and then we respond to Him. And this is happening here in this scene. He allows Him to return to His city and to have the temple restored before this act of repentance, corporate repentance, nationwide repentance, takes place. It's just evidence of God's grace to them. Evidence of God's kindness to them. And I think perhaps if we took a moment of testimony, many of you could say that there were moments in your life where God was kind to you before you repented, before you changed your ways. Why? Because the kindness of God, the New Testament tells us, the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. It actually says those words in the New Testament. Beautiful, beautiful truth. God is kind to us. He gives us more than we deserve. He tarries so that we might have more time to repent. Letter B. As a people, they need to repent. Perhaps I should have written this this way. They need to repent as a people. Okay? 
We think of most of our sins as individual. But sometimes it's necessary to repent as a people. Sometimes families can sin. And they need to, as a family, repent. Sometimes churches can sin. And they need to, as a church, repent. I want to tell you a story. There's a church that I have knowledge of. And, um, and what happened at this church is they had some folks coming from a group home. Some folks who, who had some disabilities. And they had, this church had welcomed them in and invited them in to, to share in meals. And then to come to church on like Wednesday nights or Sunday nights. And there, there was one particular person from this group that was coming into the church. And uh, I, I'm not sure if the accusation was totally fair, but this person made the comment or got back around to the church that they, they felt that they were really being kind of treated as second-class citizens when they came. They felt like they were being put off to their own tables or over in the corner. I don't know that this was all happening, but you know what the pastor of that church did? He said, I, I don't know if the accusation is true or not, but if we've allowed you to feel that way, we need to repent to you. We need to apologize to you. That just brings tears to my eyes. I mean, what a powerful, powerful thing to, as a people, say, you know what? We're not perfect just because we're the church up the street. We're sorry. Would you forgive us? It just shows people that we really do believe the gospel that we preach. When we don't have to protect our own reputation, we just get to, we just get to go to people and say, you know what, we have feet of clay too, and if whatever we've done, would you please forgive us? As a people, they needed to repent. Sometimes we need to repent as a people too. Letter C. God's purposes and His grace are ultimately for His glory. Look at verses 8 and 9 in uh, Ezra chapter 9. Ezra 9, 8 and 9. But for a brief moment, favor has been showed by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within His holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us. Beautiful, beautiful words. Why does God do it? Not because the people are righteous. Not because they're a bigger nation. Not because they're more spiritual. But because God has decided, I'm going to get my glory through these people. Is the point the people? No. The point is God who is going to get His glory through them. That's why God saves. That's why God calls out sinners. That's why He called out the people of Israel. Uh, Letter D. For those who repent and follow God, He does not treat us according to our sins. For those who repent and follow God, God does not treat us according to our sins. Chapter 9, verse 13 says this. If you look, um, and, after all has co- and after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, O God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved. In other words, this is, a good, this is the heart of repentance here. When God can send you into exile for 70 years and you look at Him in the face and said, you could have done more and you would have been justified if you had done it. God, you went easy on us in 70 years of exile. They said, He has punished us less than our iniquities deserved and He's given us such a remnant as this. Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? In other words, the sin that they're repenting of is from intermarrying with the, with the nations around them. Okay, this is not a, 
uh, this is not a racial thing. It has to do with what God had commanded them to do as a people. He said, don't marry the foreign uh, women because perhaps their gods will lead you astray. It had to do with the purity of their religion. It doesn't have to do with, with race. Okay, just want to make sure that's clear. Uh, Psalm chapter 103 says this. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide. Perhaps your conscience chides you. God will not always chide. Nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. Beautiful words. Letter E. When we do receive God's grace, it changes the way that we live. And of course, I, I read there, goodness, I've lost my place. In, verse, uh, in, in chapter 9, verse 14. Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? In other words, there's, no, uh, there's none of this, hey, God has forgiven me, so that's just like God's grace is just an expense account. I get to sin all I want to because I know that at the end of the day, God will forgive me. Friends, that is not the attitude of someone who has really met God. It's just not. Those who have really met God live a changed life. They do not desire to presume upon God's grace. We begin to desire to obey God out of thankfulness and worship. No longer obligation. And then here's the last point. True repentance has two components. Contrition and a changed pattern of life. Of course, contrition just means sorrow over sin. A contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Contrition, chapter 10, verse 1 says this. It's where the people confess their sin. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. In other words, how do we know that our repentance is true? Is when it comes with contrition, when it comes with tears, perhaps even tears. And then a changed pattern of life. Chapter 10, verse, beginning of verse 3. The people say this. The people say, Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then, it, then Ezra rose and made the, the leading priests and the Levites and all of Israel take oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. In other words, they decided to turn back from their sin. That's how we know. That's how we know if our repentance has been true. Our repentance is true if it comes with tears and if we change our ways. Friends, I hope this has been an edifying time to you. Does anyone have any questions about Ezra, the chapters that we've covered tonight, or anything that I might be able to to take a stab at uh, before we leave. I just want to always give that opportunity on Sunday nights. Well, I'm glad that you've been so pleased with my communicating abilities. I guess I've left no stone unturned. Let's pray.
God, you're so good to us. You give us everything that we need for life and godliness. You've given us two testaments, Lord, and neither one of them are without your revelation. Lord, they are your revelation to us. We get to see you and a picture of a big God and a big gospel on every page of Scripture, even in Genesis chapter 3, Genesis 3.15. You, you prophesy that the, that the Son who will come will crush the head of the serpent even though the serpent would bruise him. Lord, even in Genesis chapter 3, there's already a prophecy of Jesus. The very chapter where sin comes into the world is the very chapter where you already tell us that a solution is on the way. Thank you. Thank you for your gospel. Help us to, to train ourselves to see it on every page of the scriptures. And Lord, help us to, to worship you more because we can and do see it. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.